miss the show, no worries. On the point and on this podcast, we keep shutting down and crushing economies and taking kids out of school to protect a healthcare system that's been broken for decades. So maybe it's time to fire those who make huge six-figure salaries, yet clearly can't fix what ails our hospitals. We will talk about that. You know, we hear a lot of talk that kids are resilient, they should just suck this up. And you know what? They are. They barely get touched by this virus. But there is a very big cost to closing schools, not just to parents who have to take time off work, but kids who are being robbed of essential classroom time and living, um, you know, in a time where they can't get these memories back. We'll talk about the scars that will only be seen later on in the years. And we'll talk to a doctor who states doing this to kids is simply inexcusable. We'll also talk about a couple of historic legal cases unfolding in this country. The Trudeau government's reached a precedent-setting settlement with First Nations groups over abuses suffered by Indigenous kids forcibly taken from their homes and shoved into inadequate child welfare systems. And we'll also talk about a case of an Ontario court delivering a precedent-setting settlement for victims' families who were murdered by the Iranian regime when it blew Flight 752 out of the skies. And Iran is making clear it is not happy about this deal. Let us talk. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Let me be very, very clear. We aren't going to lock her down, lock down the system and try to get out of this. Yeah, that was then, and two weeks later, here we go again with the same failed strategy. Now these decisions will disappoint people, they will confuse some people, and they will anger some people. I understand all those reactions. As Premier, these are the hardest decisions I make, but we follow the data, and the fact is this, Omicron spreads like wildfire. Hello there, Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, January the 4th. And this is the time that I'm supposed to say Happy New Year, everybody. But then you think of the current state of affairs and it doesn't feel all that sincere. Because here we are in the state that we always seem to find ourselves in. You know, we're supposed to be getting that fresh start. I'm trying to tell people, Happy New Year, Happy New Year. People are just frustrated. They're exhausted because we're in this never-ending cycle of lockdowns that have us no further ahead than, you know, when we started this clown show in 2020 of March last, what, not last year, year before. And yet, unlike those days, you know, we know a whole lot more about this virus. We're more vaxxed. We've got tests. We've got masks. We social distance. We, the Canadian people, did everything asked of us. And I think a lot of people are saying, like, for what? You know, those in charge keep saying, just dig a little deeper. Just dig a little deeper. Do a little more. No sports. No gym. Give up family visits, weddings, funerals. Don't travel. Don't go to concerts. Don't dine out. Whatever. And here we are. For what? The Premier tells us schools won't close. It'll be a last resort. And yet, you know, today parents like myself are being bombarded with never-ending emails and links from schools trying to deal with online learning again. And we know that it fails our kids. And for those of you who think it's just two weeks, no, it's not. The fine print of that announcement was at least, at least, and from every other lockdown and online experience we've had, it generally lasts a lot longer. So am I happy with the new year? Absolutely not. I I was hoping I would be. But I'm also not alone. Because, you know, despite all these 
promises of just digging a little deeper, there is what appears to be no end to the digging. I think what's very clear about this latest lockdown is that people are at the breaking point, angry, tired. I think a lot of people feel very deceived. But it's interesting because not everyone's angry about the same things. You know, you've got people who are angry because they hate a certain politician or you know, they hate Doug Ford, whatever. I mean, if you've got kids out of school, um, you know, you take it very personally, seeing your child fall further behind or even succumb to the mental health issues because you see them as unforgivable. And I've got my little guy sitting right behind me, and I hope he doesn't hear me. He's got his headphones on. But, you know, when I told him he was going back online, the look on his face was as if I punched him in the gut. You know, he's a snowflake, and I'm not a snowflake parent. He was devastated because they've been told over and over again that they're going to lose school or sports or whatever. I mean, how many times can you disappoint kids? They're resilient to a point. And so, you know, a lot of parents are feeling a lot of anxiety trying to play teacher again while trying to keep up with the work. And I, I'm lucky. A lot of parents don't have it as lucky as this. It's a real struggle. Or maybe you're a small business owner angry because you've been bearing the brunt of this never-ending gong show. Maybe you own a gym, a gym that should be packed today with new uh, clients looking to shed the pounds. And of course, again, you're saying, oh, sorry, I can't sell you a membership, so uh, I'm not going to make any money. Maybe you're angry because you had your non-essential surgery delayed again. And we need to be very clear about what these non-essential services are. They are not for facelifts. We're talking about surgeries for cancer. We're talking about heart surgeries. We're talking about people who need you know, knees or hips to relieve chronic pain. And they're, again, pushed to the sidelines. And so this third lockdown, or I don't know, fourth, I, don't even, I can't even keep track of them now. It's affecting everyone. Just everyone is being affected differently. We all just know that it's crushing all of us. And then the question I keep coming back to is like, why? <laughs> I'm trying to understand. Why are we not better off today than we were two years ago? I'm wondering, like, how is it that the premier can come out on December 15th and tell us we won't lock down again? We can't do that to get out of this. And then two weeks later, we get this announcement. And on Monday, and I'll play you this clip, Doug Ford justified this latest flip-flop, of course, on the never-ending need to protect hospitals. This took me about 30 seconds to make a decision. It was a decisive decision. And uh, we're going to make sure that uh, we, we go through this and be as cautious as possible and use every tool in our toolbox uh, to sustain not only our health care, but our economy as well. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the tools. Nothing about these strategies has been decisive. That is the main problem. It's been a series of never-ending flip-flops that rarely make sense. Because I look at this and I say, Ford's not protecting our economy. You know, look at the small businesses that are being gutted by the very politician they believe would fight the most for them. And we are destroying millions of kids who are, yes, absolutely resilient to a point, but are being failed by an education they need and an education we pay for. And it's odd because once upon a time, children would be protected at all costs. And yet now we're just, hey, pff, just throw them online for hours at a time in isolation and let them get the mental health illnesses we know are occurring. We know they're not driving cases. 
and we know they're getting vaxxed, but hell, don't worry about it. They'll recover. They're resilient, right? And if vaccines are the ticket out of this thing, why are we more locked down? Why weren't teachers boosted as a priority during the break? If the masks keep us safe, why are N95s hard to find? Why did 11 million test kits get sent home to kids if we were not going to use them to get them back into class? We've got the tools. We don't use them. Instead, we just shut down entire economies. We lose our rights. We lose our sanity protecting broken hospitals that we give record amounts of money to. And yet, what are they doing with it? You know, we pay hospital administrators hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. It is a very, very good job to have. They're not losing money during this thing. And so I wonder, like, why are they still doing the job? If they can't do it, why are they on the job? Because their job is to make sure hospitals work. And it's clear they haven't done what they're supposed to do. The hospitals aren't staffed. Patients aren't getting services. They haven't built extra capacity, field hospitals. And these same hospitals before the pandemic were strained. They've been strained for decades. So why are businesses being punished because hospital administrators or those in charge of the government who we pay to do these things don't do their job? You know, we keep getting told, dig a little deeper, just sacrifice a little more. Decisions are being driven by data. Yeah, we do the same thing over and over and over to keep protecting hospitals that don't improve services. So I don't know anymore what the end game is. I know we have a milder variant. Or variant. I know that a lot of us are axed. We have a lot of tools. And all we get are meaningless talking points by the tools in charge who never seem to want to use them. We are the province. Toronto is the city where SARS came. We've had this dress rehearsal. We had the commissions. We had the inquiries. We had the inquests. We wrote the pandemic preparedness plans. And two years into this thing, we're locked down again. So everyone's angry, justifiably angry. Frontline staff are burnt out. People are exhausted. And you got to look, you look to places like New York City. How is it that New York City can stay open? Million kids staying in class. They've got more Omicron cases than we do. The New York, the new mayor, who's a real refreshing breath of fresh air, says he's not going to be ruled by this virus. Okay, then why are we, why are we relying on reactionary and repressive strategies that will solve nothing? This took me about 30 seconds to make a decision. It was a decisive decision, and uh, we're going to make sure that uh, we, we go through this and be as cautious as possible and use every tool in our toolbox uh, to sustain not only our health care, but our economy as well. All righty, there you go, the Premier. Then you'd be very decisive and sticking to uh, the commitment to get kids back to school. And um, here we are not going to school. And, you know, a lot of the feedback you get is, well, suck it up. Kids are resilient, which is very true. They are tough and they're not getting this virus. Yet it does not mean that there's not a cost to these constant disruptions to their learning. I have talked about them on this show for, what, 16, 17 months. 
And just an anecdotal story from my own life, uh, no, I'm not a helicopter parent, and I'm certainly not a snowflake, and neither is my kid, but when I told him he was going to be going back online, I, the look on his face as his eyes welled up with tears, it was like this anxiety um, of not wanting to be alone again. Uh, will he see his teachers? Will he miss a third birthday party? That's, you know, in a kid, an eight-year-old, that's a big deal. But this is what millions of parents are dealing with. And a lot of parents have it even worse. I mean, if you've got kids with autism or kids that live below the, the margins, I mean, there, there is a real struggle and a price to pay for this. It won't be seen immediately, but already we've seen the data rolling in. We've got record high eating disorders that people seem to shrug their shoulders at with depression, increased domestic abuse. And we've got kids falling so far behind that they're either going to drop out or they will never get the actual skills they need to have success in life. And so for all the talk that uh, schools will be closed as a last resort, it is absolute nonsense. And as my next guest writes in an op-ed for the Toronto Sun, it should be totally inexcusable. She writes, it's almost impossible to enumerate the harms associated with closing schools and many will only be discovered years from now in economic and social harms that will take generations to recover. Her name is Dr. Jennifer Grant. She's an infectious disease physician and a clinical associate professor at the University of BC's Faculty of Medicine. Good to have you, doctor. Thanks for having me. And um, I'm very happy to talk about this very important subject. You know, uh, hundreds of pediatricians, uh, Sick Kids Hospital, you name it, have reached out and begged the premier not to close schools again. That was clearly uh, fell on deaf ears. Um, you know, the, the one bit of feedback I get the most uh, is that kids should suck it up. They're resilient, and, and they are. But what do you say to those who shrug this off? So the thing about that is that kids are resilient until they aren't. And some kids are more resilient than others. So there are certainly some kids who will sail through this um, with no problem. That's not the question. The question is which kids won't. And just a few statistics that I have in front of me is that suicide uh, attempts have gone up two and a, uh, twofold um, in the United States, and mental health uh, admissions to hospital um, have uh, more than doubled uh, for the 5 to 11 age group. So yes, many kids are resilient, uh, but all of them have a limit. And as you noted with your son, um, my children are in the exact same boat. The thought of having to go to school online is enough to break them. And that's where we're at with our kids. I mean, it's enough to break me. As soon as I heard it, it was almost like I got triggered. I was like, I just panic set in because it was just such a nightmare for all those months. It was a lot longer here in Ontario than anywhere else in the country. And uh, there ain't a parent out there who will not agree with me that it was a nightmare. And, and then I think, oh, my God, the parents of those who have autistic kids, who have kids who have developmentally, um, you know, developmental issues, those kids do, do far, far um, worse and actually seem to get ignored altogether. So that's true. And I actually do have a daughter who has a learning challenge and she was interrupted in kindergarten and she has not caught back up, even though mm -hmm. BC had a relatively short uh, disruption. So it's absolutely true that any child with a learning challenge is, is in trouble. Mm -hmm. But we also have to think about the children uh, who have other challenges, not just learning challenges. There are families um, that rely on school for food, and we know that food yeah. insecurity has substantially increased during school closures, as well as those um, families who don't have the skills to help support their children, either because they lack the um, education themselves or because they don't speak the language yeah. or because they don't have access to Internet or other amenities that are necessary for the online learning.
Right. I mean, you're talking about very long-standing breakfast club programs. Uh, there's programs where, you know, I mean, teachers are the front lines to discover abuse with children. They're some of the first people that will report it. Um, that goes unnoticed. And to your point on um, those who are new to Canada, who work the shift work, who, who can't take a day off work to sit with their kids. I mean, those kids just either sit there by themselves or they just don't go online. And so there's two losses here. I mean, there's the mental health side of it, but there's the, the learning loss. And I think if we saw Dr. Grant the results immediately, I think more people would probably react because once upon a time, we would never dream of, you know, just kind of throwing kids to the sideline. We, we would do everything we can to protect them. And for some reason, over the last two years, those in charge have claimed to want to protect the kids, yet taken such actions that are so, so um, disruptive and destructive to their learning. Yes, I agree. And I think part of the challenge is that it's very easy to count cases of COVID. Um, it's very hard to count um, things like failure rates, which have more than doubled um, in most of the jurisdictions that have looked. And it's very hard to calculate what that's going to need for a child's future. But those places that have done that have calculated that children are going to be missing hundreds of thousands of dollars of future income. And that's going to make their life less secure, but it also makes them less healthy. Because the one thing right. we know about health is that wealth and health are closely linked. And those people who are um, have less income are less able to do the things that are necessary to take care of themselves and their health. Yeah, I look at uh, a statistic like we've been talking about with eating disorders. And I think, you know, we have record numbers here in the province of Ontario. We don't have the facilities or the resources to get treatment for these kids um, who are being sent all over the province to get them in some kind of bed just to keep them going. Um, and, and what I find so uh, bizarre is that there's a real kind of shrug of the shoulders to mental health illnesses. I mean, the pandemic will, will end. COVID will one day go away. But the, the mental health issues that these kids face, they don't go away. I mean, if you've got an eating disorder, you can manage it. But it is a constant challenge for your whole life. It, it is indeed. And, um, you know, especially girls, but also males who have eating disorders um, fail to build up bone as they need to. And they are um, at high risk of fractures much earlier in life um, as adults um, than they would be if they didn't have that deceiving disorder, just as an example. So it is really problematic. And the other thing that has been going up is childhood obesity. All of these kids right. who are yeah. allowed out, who have all of their sports and activities taken away from them, um, there have been massive increases in obesity, which ironically actually makes COVID worse for those kids if they are to get it. But I did just want to make one observation. Um, you said that COVID's going to go away, and I actually want to talk to well, that point. Yeah. Because COVID isn't going to go away. It's with us forever. And so now we, it's our time to learn to live with this, especially with the Omicron variant, which is relatively mild compared to the previous variants we've seen. Yeah, and and I and I know it's not going away, so I shouldn't be um you know contrite about that. But we, I do agree, we have to learn to live with this. And to me, Omicron would be the point of let's learn to live with this. Given that if you're vaxxed, then it is more mild, um you know than others, and hopefully we can build up some herd immunity once people actually get it. But you know, here we are two years into this thing. Um, schools are 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 shutting down, but we have more than enough data, Dr. Grant, to, to show kids are not spreading this. It's being brought into schools by either adults who get it or in the home where it's brought in, but kids still are not the carriers of this particular uh, virus. For whatever reason, they just aren't, and yet they are paying such a huge price. Uh, absolutely. It's very frustrating because the data are there from almost all jurisdictions that have looked 
So there are um, great technical um, reports from the UK, but also from um, most of the other European countries, the uh, European CDC. But even from my home province of British Columbia, my colleagues have carefully looked at every child um, that was reported as an exposure in a school, um, and less than 1% of those um, children actually resulted in a secondary case. And when it did happen, it was usually only one. So we're talking about a very, very low-risk environment for a very low-risk group of people. Uh, And so the damages that are being done are disproportionate and unfair uh, to the children who are having to suffer them. Yeah, and I I mean, I I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I do not believe that this will be a two-week shutdown because the last one was not a two-week shutdown, and given cases are going to be higher in two or three weeks, to me it's almost impossible to think that there's going to be the leadership in place to get these kids back to school. Um, My my big concern is that nowhere in the conversation in the last two years has anyone talked about getting kids caught up. It's just continually push them through, just keep pushing them through, make them feel good, make happy. But but there's real learning loss happening and no real, um, you know, urgency to get the kids caught up. Why is that conversation not happening? That's a very good question and probably out of my area of expertise, but I think it's something that everybody listening to this show should be asking, especially if they have children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, Mm -hmm. cousins, anyone who's affected by this, because this is going to hurt an entire generation of children. They will be known as the COVID generation because of what's happened to them. Yeah. And do we know, Doctor, when the actual data will start rolling in on some of these long-term um, effects? And when people might say, oh, gee, we, we should have listened back then. So, so, in fact, data started rolling out almost immediately. And there are some very good um, analyses looking at um, comparative uh, results and standardized tests that many countries do over time. So we know this is happening. We know that there's even a, a three-month uh, closure as happened in Sweden resulted in a 20 to 40 percent learning loss and that learning loss was concentrated in children mm-hmm. of lower socioeconomic standard status those um, of immigrant uh, children of immigrants and children with learning disabilities these data are already here um, in terms of what this will do to this generation of children the problem is that we will see the effects of this 40 50 years 60 years and even into the children of these children if you've got the money and you can help uh, and get your kids ahead and the therapies and all the rest of it, you're one step ahead of it. But no question about it, there are going to be many who just can't and uh, and I'll be left behind. But nonetheless, um, I appreciate you joining me, Dr. Grant, and uh, I urge anybody to read your op-ed in the Toronto Sun. I appreciate you writing that. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much for having me. That is Dr. Jennifer Grant, and uh, that op-ed is in the Toronto Sun. And uh, again... You know, we might be able to forgive the first shutdown because we didn't know what we were dealing with, but that we are still doing this two years in is is nothing short of negligence, if you ask me. Um, and this is not about being a snowflake. This is not about kids not being tough. At the very least, they need to learn, and they're not getting that. And if you've got a private school or you're in a school that you could afford, and, and, and well, they're not open. None of them are open. But if, if you can afford to, to do that and you've got the resources, then you're a step ahead, but your kids are still being affected. But again, most of the population are actually being affected by this. Knowing that $40,000 is not enough to make someone whole, but it certainly is a step in the right direction of acknowledging the harm that's been, that's been experienced by individuals. 
Welcome back to the show. So on New Year's Eve, the uh, Trudeau government quietly announced that it had reached a tentative agreement with the First Nations groups over the systemic underfunding of child welfare and their family support programs. And so we got the details today of what this $40 billion will mean. And this is money for up to 200,000 First Nations children who had been forcibly removed from their families between 1991 and 2022. They will also go to their parents and caregivers. And part of the money will be compensation. Another $20 billion will go to investments in long-term reform. And just for background on this and how we came to this point, back in 2019, there were several tribunals which found that the federal government had willfully and recklessly discriminated against Indigenous children by failing to provide funding for children through their family services. And so they ordered that the government must provide up to $40,000 to First Nations children. The Trudeau government fought it. And then they backed off because of public pressure. Now, of course, this is just one settlement in a series of lawsuits that First Nations groups have launched against the federal government. It is not signed, but certainly precedent setting. I think the question now is what happens moving forward. Ken Coates is a Canadian historian who is an expert on all things of Northern Canadian issues and Aboriginal issues. He's also a historian with Mar- uh, the um, Macdonald Laurier Institute. And he joins us now. Good to have you. Great to be with you. All right, so what do you make of this uh, deal? I, I mean, is this just public pressure built up and they had to walk away from the fight? No, they the fight. And so a uh, better part of valor probably rather than responding to public pressure. Um, so a couple of things that stand out about this. One is that it took them so long to get to the point that it was fairly obvious for the last two or three years. Um, so they dragged it out for a long time and realized that the, that the delays always uh, rebound mostly to the Indigenous people. They, they pay the biggest price. Uh, for, for all of these stallings that were actually going on. Second thing that really stands out is the fact that there's been almost no public backlash and, and furor about, about a commitment of $40 billion. It wasn't that long ago, pre-pandemic, where $40 billion was a staggering amount of money. And quite frankly, because of the pandemic, we've sort of gotten so used to these huge sums that they sort of water off the ducks back. People aren't reacting to it. So um, they had no choice. Uh, they lost in the tribunals. You can have a debate about whether the tribunals are a good way to address these public policy failures. Um, now they've got an agreement um, that was been then developed with Indigenous organizations and, and some of the sponsoring organizations that pushed this, this claim. Um, and now we get to see what happens. I think there's some really good possibilities here, but with a lot of un- unintended or unexpected consequences we have to talk about. Right. I mean, because the deal itself is not signed. So it's not a done deal, but it is agreed to in principle. Um, But I don't see how this could be derailed. And to your point on, you know, $40 billion, I mean, yes, the the things that we would be aghast over uh, just don't hit the same way um, that they used to before this pandemic. Having said that, it's it's a lot of money and it is just one of many, many issues uh, and claims that the federal government, it's not just the Trudeau government, but many, many governments of the past have been fighting and continue to fight. So this is one settlement. What does the precedent of this set moving forward for other deals? Well, one of the things happens is this one has raised the bar quite dramatically. Um, so we're responding to this particular one, but one of the First Nations groups in Alberta just settled a, a what they call a specific claim. This is land that was taken from them during World War I. Uh, they settled for $1.5 billion on a much smaller claim in northern Saskatchewan, a small community, a Clearwater First Nation. They settled for $133 million. And there are so many of these things, they barely register anymore. And and it's kind of an interesting sort of thing. We We could have solved all of these things 30 years ago for a tenth the cost. But we fought them, and the federal government spent an enormous amount of time resisting all of these court processes. Now the, the, the price tag goes up every time. 
And the price, there's a bunch of court cases going before the government, uh, before the, the legal system right now, that are, that are easily this size and more. Um, and we're going to see them coming one after the other after the other. If I was a First Nation person, Métis or Inuit person, I'd be doing the same thing. You know, clearly the government has defaulted on its own obligations, not respected its rights and duties, um, and the courts are willing to back that up with uh, financial compensation. So anybody in Canada, Indigenous or non-Indigenous, would actually pursue these opportunities um, because it's their right to do so. Um, And I'm not sure if Canadians themselves have sort of started to add up uh, sort of the, the calculus of guilt uh, but a boy is sure starting to add up to very substantial sums of money. And the question, really important question is, will the compensation actually help the people who suffered because they did suffer? And secondly, will the, the money for reform actually result in meaningful reform? And if we get meaningful reform, then quite frankly, the $20 billion of reform is going to be cheap at the price because the cost of our current system is, is way worse in human terms, but also in direct financial terms with children who end up in the hospital says to end up dead, um, the, the costs are staggering. And so, you know, if the money is well spent, well, this could be a really good thing. Uh, and we're going to have to sit back and see what actually comes out of that. But I'm actually relatively optimistic about the, the systemic reform side. Um, the compensation side, uh, that money tends not to sort of end up uh, in any long-term benefits for folks. Right. And so that was one of the things that Cindy Blackstock, who is, you know, headed this thing from the get go, uh, said, you know, it's all about words right now. We need to see where that extra 20 billion on the other side of this gets invested. And that that would take probably years. And some of us will be around and some of us won't be around. But what does this and you are an expert in, in particular in the area of things like land claims. What does that do for that process? I mean, yeah, the, the dollar signs are going to continue to add up. But at the same time, um, I think Canadians want reconciliation. I think they want rights, uh, wrongs righted. But how expensive will this get? And then when does it stop? At what point does it stop? Or do we continue seeing these suits? So my own view is that it only stops if we actually do a reset of the relationship. That if we can persist with our current arrangement, which is, you know, the Indigenous uh, Services Canada, Crown Indigenous Relations, federal government fraternalism, all that kind of stuff, the, the Ottawa bureaucracy. If we continue with that relationship, these will go on indefinitely. And we'll find lots and lots of claims and people, will, lawyers and historians and geographers and environmental specialists are, are, are working really hard with First Nations to identify places where governments have, have misbehaved. And we'll, we'll do it endlessly. Where, where it stops is when you actually get a, a resetting of the relationship. And you can use the examples of Nunavut, um, some of the Northwest Territories, Yukon, um, where 11 of 14 First Nations have signed modern treaties, the Nishka. When you get a reset of the relationship, it stops. There's a big pay up front uh, and, and landing compensation. I think, quite frankly, we need a reset of the relationship. That, that this, mm-hmm. this process we're doing now is, is making an awful lot of, of, of non-Indigenous consultants and lawyers very wealthy. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. these things cost a fortune just to, just to go through the courts. Not, and then the settlement comes through, and there's lots of people sitting around to help them spend that money too. So I think the, the reality of it is, and we're seeing some great examples of this, particularly in Saskatchewan and, and Kawasis First Nation is part of the, the poster child for this, same with Kamloops in British Columbia. Um, this money is going to use to, to restructure Indigenous governments. The Indigenous governments will become more autonomous. They'll take responsibility for child and family welfare. They'll do it differently. They'll probably do it better because they probably couldn't do it worse if they tried. Um, and we're going to see a, a, a growing size of government and Indigenous governments. Uh, the jobs will transfer from the federal and provincial bureaucracies. They'll transfer into Indigenous-run uh, governments. 
Um, they'll be far more accountable to the people. They'll be responsive to culture and things of that sort. And and the lawsuits will no longer be to the senior levels of government. They'll actually be to the First Nation governments uh, if there's a if there's a problem down the line. So so the, the good part I see in this is actually a reimagining of the role of government and the empowerment of indigenous self-government. That part's really, really exciting, and we've seen some great progress in that regard. The other thing is to give the federal government its due. There have been a whole set of, of agreements signed in the last uh, six to eight months. Um, the, the Trudeau government uh, has really clearly sort of opened the checkbook and then given instructions to their negotiators to settle the deals. So we're getting more movement than we've had in the last six months than we probably had in the last five years. And one hopes that it will continue because, quite frankly, the process of going through the courts is painful. Mm. It, it makes the First Nations pay most of the cost, and I don't, I don't find that very accommodating. Just quickly, Ken, just so I can get clarification, um, would you not need to redo or get rid of the Indian Act to get true reconciliation? I mean, really, unless you let First Nations have a governing role in their own affairs, isn't that truly what is needed? Absolutely. And let's remember that when modern treaties are signed, the Indian Act disappears. So if you look at the Nishka in British Columbia, if you look at the situation in Nunavut or the Yukon, the Indian Act no longer applies to those First Nations that have signed modern treaties. And you know what? There has not been a crisis. You know, have you heard of a crisis of communities that are no longer under the Indian Act, fighting and resisting and and demanding change? I'll tell you, come up with me to the Yukon, I'll show you. You'll see communities that are empowered, uh, they're self-governing, they're responsive, they're collaborating, they're working with the Yukon government, working with the federal government. We, We can see what the future looks like by going to these places where we have modern treaties. I would love nothing more than the government of Canada, the government of New Brunswick, and the First Nations in particular in New Brunswick to say, let's do a a do-over. Let's write a modern treaty that covers all of New Brunswick and modernizes the whole process. Let's get the Indian Act and throw it out the window. It's a terrible piece of legislation. It's 150 years old, and it's been destructive all all the whole time. So yes, 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 please, let's do that. An interesting issue, hopefully, that will be brought up in the next election, but uh, that would take leadership, and we'll see who's got that kind of leadership within their uh, reach. Ken, very much appreciate your uh, time on this. It's a complex issue. It's very confusing for a lot of people, but uh, appreciate the clarity on your end. Thank you. You're more than welcome. Take care. Bye, Alex. That, that is Ken Coates uh, joining us here with the breakdown of what is a pretty substantial deal and precedent setting here. The decision is precedent setting um, for a number of reasons. First, uh, we believe and we know that this is the first of its kind in Canada, uh, a a damages award for terrorism, for acts of terrorism. And it's never been done, never been, uh, uh, we've never had a a decision like this in Canada. Well, before COVID sucked up all our attention, the biggest story Canada had been confronted by was the Iranian downing of Flight 752. And, you know, we're four days now until the second anniversary of the bombing of that flight, which killed all 176 people on board, including 85 uh, Canadians. And you've got to just imagine the agony those families are going through. They've pretty much been forgotten uh, once the pandemic hit. They've been fighting for justice against a terror regime all on their own. They had numerous promises made by a government that has done very little. And on Monday, as most of us were not paying attention, Ontario Court awarded this $107 million settlement to the families of six people who were murdered, uh, six families who had people murdered on that flight. And this is precedent-setting. It's the first time compensation has been awarded to these families in this country. Whether the families get that money remains to be seen, but that's not really why they launched this suit. They launched it because they want justice for their loved ones, 
And Iranian officials are basically shrugging, shrugging off the ruling, saying that Canadian courts have no jurisdiction here. Nonetheless, they didn't bother to defend themselves in this case. And this is a regime we all know denies anything that happened and has done everything it can to block the investigation into the black boxes, the crime scene, and it on it goes. Mark Arnold is a, a specialty lawyer in civil litigation with Gardner, Miller and Arnold, the firm. He joins us now. Who can fill us in on uh, what this case is about? Good to have you, Mark. Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And by the way, you've done a superb job of summarizing it so quickly, accurate and to the <laughs> point. So thank you. for Well, that's that. good. I, that's good to know, because it is it is a complex issue. It is one of a number of cases and and. Um, you know, um, fights against this this terror regime, but it's an important fight. And 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 explain, kind of in the you know bottom line of of what has been ruled here. Well, the bottom line is this: the Ontario Superior Court of Justice yesterday delivered what I consider to be, and families consider to be, justice to the five families representing six deceased by ordering a substantial compensation award the tune of $107 million. Now, we were asking for more, as lawyers typically do, but this is a proper, well-balanced, and just decision. The case is, this case is not about money, primarily. It's about justice. And if you speak to any of my family member clients, they will all say mm -hmm. that yesterday the court delivered justice. Unfortunately, the Canadian government on the public law side of the claim, attempts, attempting negotiations with Iran and so on, has not delivered justice, has been opaque and un unhelpful, yeah. has misled the court, frankly, misled the court. And I continue to beg our government to help us in what's to come. What's to come are going to be substantial collection efforts that are now underway. Yeah, and I should point out to our listeners who have gotten to know him over the last couple of years, Shaheen Mogadam is one of those who is on this case. He's one of the plaintiffs here. He lost his wife, uh, Shakiba, as well as his 10-year-old son, Rostin. He has made it his mission in life, as you well know, Mark, uh, of fighting for this justice. He was photographed with the prime minister who made a lot of promises to him. He has been abandoned by the prime minister. And so these families really are going out of their way to find the justice that is probably almost impossible to find when you're dealing with a terror regime. Um, and, and the way, I guess, you know, you could get the money or will have to get the money is by seizing Iranian assets in Canada and abroad. How hard will that be to do, given the Iranian government didn't even bother to defend itself in this case? Um, it, it will be an interesting challenge. Uh, uh, we certainly have our eye on, on, a, on many assets, both in Canada and uh, abroad. Um, it would be unwise for me to disclose uh, to your listeners mm -hmm. exactly what we're going to do. I certainly don't want to give Iran an opportunity to hide any more than they've hidden already what they have. But we are aware of substantial assets and collection efforts are now underway. Yeah, and it's interesting because Iran has denied any blame. I mean, they reluctantly accepted some blame, but said, well, it was an accident, it was a mistake. You know, they cleaned up the crime scene, pretty much sanitized the whole region. They hid the black boxes. They've done everything possible to obstruct any kind of accountability here in this case. In fact, Ukraine has been... Uh, taking charge of this investigation with some assistance from the RCMP, which speaks to your point about, you know, the Canadian government that promises to, to get justice and then it lets everyone else do it.
it for them. And so I think there's a sense among these families that justice will not happen. But I do want to ask you about something that happened in the press conference that you and your firm held today. And it was um, an interruption. Um, and I don't know who it is, but can, I'm going to play you the audio. Maybe you can explain what happened. Take a listen. Sure. And if anybody from the Islamic Republic of Iran is on this call, um, if the Supreme Leader is on this call, we're coming after your assets, uh, gentlemen. And it was at that point, um, uh, Mark, in the press conference that the whole thing went off the rails because someone came in with a video, they were playing music. I don't know who it was who hacked into this or decided to use this, but is, is Iran uh, you know, playing games here on this? Um, I would I would doubt it. Um, I think uh, I mean, we're investigating it now. Um, what I think it is is just a bunch of kids out there trolling uh, the Internet uh, who found our Zoom connection and decided that they would uh, uh, hijack it. I've never had that happen before in any of my experiences with Zoom. So we don't know who, who it is. I don't believe it was Iran. I don't believe, I mean, Iran doesn't work that way. Iran basically ignores it. Uh, and when it, when it happened, we tried to quickly shut it down. And I think we did within a minute or two, it was shut. Uh, and we did start again in about 15 minutes and resurrected it again. And the press conference continued. It's a side issue and it's a, it is of no moment and has no impact at all, except for the annoyance that it created. And when I think about it, there's actually a little element of humor. I mean, it's kind of in a way funny, although it's sad to have done that on this occasion to these families. So that's my take on yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, if only these people had given thought to that, you know, in four days, uh, these families mark uh, yet another, um, you know, very, very somber anniversary in their lives. Um, but maybe you can speak, I mean, there are a number of um, cases before the courts in different areas against the Iranian regime. Will, in your mind, there actually ever be accountability here in this case for these families? Well, there's... Well, we have accountability now in the court judgments that we have on liability that this was an intentional mm -hmm. terrorist act uh, committed mm -hmm. under Canadian law. Now, your, reader, your listeners may say, well, how can you sue them in Canada? The answer is that Iran is designated by the, by, under Canadian law as a state sponsor of terrorism, along with another country, Syria. They are two countries in which we can launch legal claims for terrorist activities conducted that affect the lives of Canadians. So that's what allowed us the jurisdiction to bring this claim, and we were successful mm -hmm. in, in, in doing that. Yeah, I mean, what we saw with Air India, you know, when we got a lot of promises made, a lot of demands for accountability, and what we ended up seeing, Mark, were a lot of families uh, over 30, 40 years who have been completely ignored and were left to fend for themselves. Is yeah. that going to be the case here with, with this situation um, for these families, or, or, or will there actually be some kind of resolution um, or proper supports for these people who've been, um, well, you know, had so much taken from them? Well, certainly on the public law side of the claim, our prime minister talks the talk, but he doesn't walk mm -hmm. the walk, nor does his government walk the walk. They have been unhelpful and opaque. I believe that they oppose the steps that we've taken. And on one occasion recently, they actually misled the court in my claim. They were asked to, uh, to explain what sanctions were being imposed by Canada uh, in the past and, and going forward. And they advised the court that Iran was engaged, quote, unquote, in negotiations with Canada. That's simply an untrue statement. And it was belied mm. by a letter that the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, 
sent to the families at the same time saying Iran is refusing negotiations. They advised the court that Iran was engaged, and that isn't true. And I don't understand why our government has been so difficult uh, in opposing, not supporting, and in fact, I've not received a single call from anybody in either the government or the bureaucracy about this case, either, either complimenting, congratulating, offering assistance, nothing. Our government is being unhelpful, and it's quite, quite upsetting, actually, both to me and to the families. Yeah, well, it is a government that wanted to normalize relations with this terror regime, and I don't know if that's the case here, but it is a, a black, uh, you know, stain on, on them. Uh, Mark, well, thank you well, very much I may, for... Ex- I, yeah, go ahead. I, may, yeah. I, I would also just say that if, but for this incident, that would have happened. Mm-hmm. We would have restored diplomatic relations with Iran, but for this incident. I tend to agree, which is pretty alarming, but uh, nonetheless, we will continue to follow this, Mark. Very much appreciate you breaking this down, and we will continue to uh, give those who lost loved ones uh, on that flight a voice on this station. Thanks for your interest. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. That's Mark Arnold, who uh, is representing what is a pretty precedent-setting case here in this country, so we'll continue to follow that. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio 640 Toronto.